right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I am your host, Sam Sherrington. And today I'm joined by Ben Zhao. Ben is a professor of computer science at the University of Chicago. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please give us your greatest rating and review. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sam. Happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to digging into our conversation. We'll be talking about your research into the intersection of security and generative AI. And to bring us down that path, I'd love to have you share a little bit about how you came to work at that intersection. Sure. Uh, I've been an academic for, gosh, it's almost 20 years. For the last 10 years or so, I'd probably say, uh, I've been focusing much more on computer security and for the last few years, it's been much more about computer security of AI systems and really mostly defending machine learning systems. But in the last few years, I think it's been increasingly important to me, visible to me, that AI systems and machine learning systems are open to misuse and abuse. And so a lot of my more recent attention has been spent on understanding what that looks like and building systems to protect people against misuse and even weaponized versions of AI. That's what got me here. And I guess I think in the last 12 months, it's really been all about human creativity and defending human creatives, whether it's artists or choreographers or singers and musicians and writers from invasive uses of generative AI that you know not only trains on their life's work without consent or compensation, but also seeks to replace them wholesale. And has that represented a, a big shift in your work? I know a lot of work at the intersection of security and AI in years past has been focused on like protecting models against adversarial attacks and bad actors, whereas you're taking a human-centric approach as opposed to a model-centric approach. Is that new for you or kind of a continuation of the thread? A little bit. I mean, I think, like you mentioned, I worked on adversarial examples and how to defend them for a number of years. But also, you know, more recently, I think as early as 2017, I think we had a paper on what happens when you can basically fool humans by writing online product reviews that are as good as human written ones, and people couldn't tell the difference. But this was, you know, years before generative AI. And then 2021, we had a paper on what happens when people can mimic human speech and synthesize human speech in the voice of a particular target. And again, full humans who couldn't tell the difference. But that was also a year before generative AI got there. So yeah, I mean, increasingly, I think it was quite clear that this line of work was going to be important. But I think generative AI really just took everything up a notch real quick. And one of your first projects in the area was, was Glaze. Is that the correct order? Can you talk a little bit about that project? It started, I mean, honestly, in 2020, when we did an early project protecting humans against invasive facial recognition. So how do you modify your own photos so that they don't get downloaded by companies like Clearview.ai and then use the training models to recognize your face, right? But then we had that tool that was out there, got a lot of press. And then last year... Well, before we go much further than that, let's spend a little bit of time on that one. How did you approach that problem? I've seen and I've interviewed some folks that have worked on analogous problems or adjacent problems or approaches of like camouflage clothing and, you know, masks and different kind of signals that take an adversarial example type of approach. I'm presuming you're talking about digital images and maybe injecting some kind of noise or something. Is that the idea? 
it's a little bit different. So, you know, the ugly sweater thing from Tom Goldstein and others, for example, that's more of a untargeted attack, right? That's a, I'm going to screw with your classifier so that you can't even detect that I'm here type of thing. Facial recognition is a little bit different. And facial recognition is a pretty straightforward task. There's lots of models out there. They all sort of have mutual transferability. So Fox basically took one of the existing models and said, okay, we're going to interpret how most models are going to see your face. Basically, the computer optimization where we find out the minimum set of pixels that we can alter to change your photo in such a way that it looks pretty much the same to you. But in the face recognition feature space, you look like, I mean, make me look like Denzel Washington, right? Or someone completely different. And so what that does then is that if a model trains on this, right, I'm going to take all my selfies and modify them all the same way, then it's honestly going to associate the name Ben with somebody who looks like Denzel. And then somebody, you know, on the street takes a real photograph of me, sends it to the, to the model company, they're going to come back with a blank because the actual feature space where I should be, there's not much there. Or, you know, there's lots of other people there. So it'll come back with someone else's name, but it'll think that Ben actually looks like Ben's own. So you give me a normal sort of Asian looking guy and, and it's not going to come back with uh, Ben's name on it. Okay. Super interesting. Was that approach implemented or was it, you know, how far did you get in terms of implementation and getting people to kind of take it up as an approach? Yeah, no, we built a tool. It was downloaded over a million times in a year. After that, we stopped tracking. It got a New York Times article. It got a lot of global press. I think a lot of people used it. I don't know. We don't keep track of how much now, but we still get occasional emails on our mailing list. People just asking, hey, have you done any updates to this? We haven't. It's been a while. But what's interesting is that after that paper came out, I think at least six or seven follow-up papers came out from different groups trying to do similar kind of things using slightly better models or more transferable or different approaches. So I think that was the big positive was the fact that we sort of pointed people's attention to this new problem. And I think a lot of people jumped on it and they're still writing papers about it today. So that's a plus. That's, I think, the lasting impact from that. And there's a bunch of these tools out there now that people can use. I'm curious if there would be a way to somehow measure the broad impact of a tool like that on the facial recognition software providers. You're shaking your head. You've thought about this. No, no, we've done it. You've built it. You've done it. We built it. We measured it. And it even at the time that we, uh, you know, as part of the research paper, we tested against Amazon recognition. We tested against, I believe, which other model? We tested on at least like three or four public commercial models. And we found that you could fool them. Absolutely. I guess I was thinking less like benchmarks and more like, I'm curious, like what percent of images in some large providers database have been like masked or fooled or something like that? And if there's a way to reverse engineer that out, I, probably not, but it's kind of an interesting idea that I was curious about. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I never thought about it along that dimension. Difficult to know because on an individual photo basis, I think it's pretty challenging to figure out whether the feature space position has been distorted or not. There's probably some techniques, but none that come to mind immediately that really work well at scale, right? To where you can actually do this with a bunch of photos. So yeah, but that would be an interesting question for sure. That was a while ago. We're talking about 2020. That was a whole pandemic ago. That was a whole lifetime ago. I mean, man, we all looked different. We all felt different. We all lived different back then. And then last year, we had some artists reach out to us basically said, hey, your tool Fox looks super interesting. Can it protect art? 
And I was utterly confused. I was like, what do you mean? I mean, come on, it says facial recognition. How, <laughs> you know, what part of that connects to art? And so we wrote back this very sort of confused email said, well, thank you so much for your interest, but like, I don't know what you mean. And that was that until about like three, four months later, when all the press hit about all the image generators, Dolly 2 and Midjourney, all that, my student Sean was like, literally like we had a night light bulb moment in the lab and he was like ben is this what we were talking about in that artist email and and we said oh maybe that's it so we reached back you know we still had that original email we get it now yeah we're like is this what you mean and this was an artist from the netherlands kim we still had that old email and she's like yeah but if you guys don't know what's going on here jump on the zoom call and sure enough we did we're like all right we don't know what the heck is going on we get on this call 10, 15 minutes, we get on and it's packed. It's like 500, 600 people, all artists, all on a single Zoom call and just crazy. Just everybody talking about how their life is literally upside down using, because of generative AI, what people are doing with generative AI models. People are finding not only have their entire life's work, their entire galleries been downloaded and scraped and trained on, but then that other people are specifically using these models to literally replicate them and then use their names as a prompt so that they can draw whatever they want in the style of, you know, Artist X. And Artist X doesn't even know. Spend some more time on, like, as best as you understand it, like what that means for an artist's life to be upside down. I think for people who are creating art, they're probably not monetizing that art because nobody pays for art. And their art got sucked into these databases and yeah, they're probably pissed, but like it doesn't really impact them yeah. unless they're like the top 0.05% of artists. But here you have 500, 600 artists that probably aren't all the top 0.5, you know, 0.5% of artists that are really impacted. How are they impacted? It is so interesting. I mean, I did not understand the art world and, you know, even today, I mean, it's been a year, but I still only understand snippets of it, right? But there are so many different kinds of artists concept artists, illustrators, graphics artists, and they all do different things, but a large majority of them work on a freelance basis and they're happy doing it. It gives them freedom of scheduling. They can pick the gigs they want and they can support themselves well. And it's largely through basically word of mouth. They, they put their galleries online of their best work and people will see it. People know about their work. Oh, you did that album cover for Tori Amos. Oh, you did that book cover for so-and-so love that stuff. Can you work with me on this new upcoming movie poster? That kind of stuff. And so so that signature style is their livelihood. Absolutely. And they work for decades to get this stuff, right? So they're very unique. You can a lot of times look at one single image and be like, oh yeah, that's Sam Yang or, or that's Carlo Ortiz or something very distinctive. And so for them, it's devastating. I mean, it, I've never seen anything like it. It's not like me, you know, someone saying, oh, I took Ben's research paper and I did a thing with it. I'm not married to that thing. It's cool, but this is literally their identity, right? This is their calling card. When somebody sees that art, they're like, oh yeah, that's Gregory Taus. Look at that dragon. But then what happens is someone else takes that style. Literally, it's like wearing your skin and taking your entire identity and then doing things with it that you not only can't control, but sometimes you don't even know. And one day you discover there's this whole trove of art that's out there that bears your name, right? Because it's part of a prompt, but it has your name on it. But obviously it's not you. You never do it like that way. And it, in most cases, looks like crap. Looks like really poor imitations of your art. The emotional devastation on, for some of these artists is, is so real. Like self-harm is a thing. People are depressed. People are just, it's dark. 
And it gets to the point where, like, for example, just this past week, Kelly McKernan is one of the plaintiffs in the stability lawsuit, and, and I've gotten to know her over the last year. She's one of these artists who's been attacked a lot in this dimension. And one of the things that really upset her this week was the fact that she realized when you Google her name in the image column from Google, what comes up is not her art. It's literally an AI-generated copy of her art. When your identity has been completely subsumed by AI, that's when it really hits. And she's not even the first one. I mean, I think Greg Rutowski had that happen to him months ago, but it's a whole level of sort of identity theft. And economically, it's devastating. I've, I've now gotten to know so many artists who were a year ago were highly successful, had no worries about supporting themselves and their family, and now are literally scrounging. They're losing their life savings. They're just trying to hang on because all the gigs are disappearing. People are using AI to generate really cheap. If you have anywhere near a, a sort of an artist's eye, you'll see just so many problems with this generative art. But that's what people are doing because it's cheap. And so the gigs are drying up, the freelance jobs are disappearing, and you see on a weekly basis, people announcing that, hey, it's been a good 15 years, it's been a good 23 years, but I'm going to start driving for Uber tomorrow. That hits home. That's devastating to see some of the most amazing artists basically say, I'm so good, but I still can't make a living. I'm going to go start driving cars tomorrow. The thought that comes to mind is like, we've got fair trade for coffee and products and things like that. Is there a movement to have like certified human created art? Is that a thing yet? It is. It's rapidly becoming a thing. We went so fast from the utter fascination of, wow, look at that glossy thing that's so real, and I can't believe AI produced that, to now it's literally people look at it and they're like, yeah, that looks so plastic and, and sort of soulless. And, and so people are really, whether it's the book cover industry, whether it's people who do uh, Wizard of the Coast, uh, fantasy books, and a lot of these publishers are now getting very specific about if you're using AI, you better tell people. And if you're using AI, you're probably not going to get one of these human gigs. So now there's a delineation and some of these AI people who are creating AI prompts and, and art, quote unquote, they're going off and claiming themselves to be uh, human artists. And they're literally scamming people. They're now people who go on Twitter and, and tell stories of, I paid a good commission for this and I was promised this is human art. And then lo and behold, someone can prove to me that this is actually a mid-journey output. And so they're very upset. There's a lot of that going on. It's totally unrelated, but I saw a tweet, and I guess you can't really believe the tweets that you see any more than you can believe the art that you see. But someone kind of uncovered this conference that is a tech conference, and they had a couple of, you know, out of their N number of male presenters, they had three female presenters. And it turns out that they were AI-generated images and the women did not actually exist. Yeah, that's a thing now, right? I mean, talk about like diversity through what? Forgery? And this is just the, just the most recent incarnation. I mean, months ago, we already had cases where magazines were, were including people of color, models of color, and turns out they were AI-generated. Already underrepresented everything stacked against them. And now to be replaced by AI, just because it's cheaper to find to do that than to find real models of color and real representation. So yeah, it's all kind of gross. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of good about it. Yeah. And the uh, it's just striking me in this conversation, like the speed at which like entirely new classes of social problems are coming to becoming real is, is nuts. Yeah, it's, you know, in many ways, it's really exacerbating the worst of what we already had. 
underrepresentation, bigotry, bias, the wealth inequality, all these things are getting blown up and magnified by this race to the bottom, right? You have this technology that's really centralized in terms of who's producing it. And there's going to be real reach, a, a real gap between those who can afford human things versus those who are basically going to get AI things, right? And, and some of these companies, they go out there and they say, hey, look, you know, it's going to be great. We're going to be able to produce AI doctors. And then you ask them, well, so, well you know, if you had a choice, who would you take? They'd be, of course, yeah, now I would prefer a human doctor. In many cases, people can't afford human doctors. So let's give the people who can't afford human doctors AI doctors, right? And that's the problem is when the AI doctors are hallucinating, when they're wrong, when they're making bogus recommendations. But then, you know, the argument is maybe this is better than nothing. But man, that's a slippery slope and it's a dark, dark place that we're heading towards. And magnifies a lot of problems that already exist, as, as you pointed out. So how does this get us to glaze? Right. So glaze is really the first step. What I saw was just tremendous damage to real creative people where they were being impacted, you know, viscerally in front of them by these models that were being fine-tuned on them. That's where you take a stable diffusion model. You just say, I'm going to literally learn the fine-grained details of a particular person's style. And when you zone in and hone in on a single person, it can get very, very specific, very, very quick. So people were doing this. People were you know, training on individual artists and then sharing and even selling some of these models. Like, hey, would you like a Sam Yang for you know, five bucks? Right, you could do that. And tens of thousands of people were downloading these little mimicry models. So the first thing we wanted to do was to stop this. And so Glaze does that. Glaze basically kind of does what plays the same trick we did with Fox, except on art. And so it takes the style, it takes your image, digital image of an artwork, and it understands what the current AI models would see when they look at this particular piece of art in terms of style, in terms of composition. And then it goes in and says, mathematically speaking, how do I compute the smallest set of changes in such a way that it would look pretty much the same to human eyes? stylistically, artistically, whatever. But to the AI model, it would look like a dramatically different artistic style. And that's the, the question that it does. The answer is every single time you feed in an image and we'll take in you know, a realism charcoal portrait, for example, and produce a, a Jackson Pollock-like style, right? And so what that does is it makes small changes to the art. For the most part, it looks pretty much the same. For some styles, it's actually really, really hard to tell the difference, even if you got it blown up side by side. It's very subtle. But you put this online, and the whole point was artists can do this with their art, and then they could upload images online and feel good about it because they know they won't be trained. If someone does download that glazed art, they try to train the model on it to try to you know, subsume your style, they'll just get it wrong. They'll get some other style that looks nothing like the original target. And that's how it protects people. And artists were really stuck in a hard place where they said, well, either I could stop posting art, in which case I have no more income because that's just how people get known. That's my promotion vehicle, right? Exactly, right? I mean, this is how you get commission. So either I don't do that and just shut myself off or I upload art and I risk basically being sucked into a model without my permission or, or knowledge. And so Clay sort of gives them a way out, right? So now they can upload art, they can feel good about it, they can know that even someone were to download these images and try to train on them, that they would get something wrong and they would fail. So that's what Glaze does, yeah. Got it. And implementation-wise, I'm envisioning 
something akin to white box adversarial attacks. You mentioned that there are representative models and they general, you know, the approaches that you would take against them generalized. So it sounds kind of white boxy. And you mentioned injecting perturbations, which sounds like adversarial attacks. Is it that kind of idea? Yeah, kind of, except it's a poisoning attack, right? It's not an inference time attack. It's model poisoning. Yeah, it is white box, but it transfers real well, particularly since stable diffusion is what most of these models use when they try to mimic, because it is the open source version, right? You can't take Dolly or Imagine or Midjourney and, and fine tune it yourself. So people use stable diffusion, and that's what we use to generate Glaze as well. So that works fairly well. It is white box, it is fully accessible, and it transfers real well to the target because the target is also basically using the same model. Okay. In terms of challenges that you ran into trying to adapt what you did previously to this new challenge, this new world, or some of the biggest challenges slash lessons learned? I think the first thing was just trying to understand how do you isolate style because it's such a vague thing. And that was mentally our biggest challenge. And I was most concerned about that. Turns out you can use style transfer to solve this problem. So we take your original art, we give it to literally a local copy stable diffusion. We say, transfer this, do a style transfer, and give me a version of this that looks like Jackson Pollock, right? It'll do that. And we use that output then as the training target, as the projection target for our perturbations. So we can make it look in the feature space like that Jackson Pollock version of your art so that we make small changes to the original. It still looks like the original, but in the feature space, it looks like a Jackson Pollock version of that same thing that you, whatever that you drew, right? And so that gets past that problem. But we had a lot of other issues that I think it's just part and parcel of trying to actually do something for real. Developing software that people can actually use is obviously a challenge. But to the credit of all these artists, we worked together with so many artists and got so much help. Our first research paper was such a success because we had almost 1,200 artists sign up to help us in a massive user study, right? I mean, you don't ever see that in a user study. You get 100 and 200, you're like, okay, that's legit. No, we had like 1,156 artists, all either part-time or full-time professional artists, all join in on these user study. They didn't want to be paid. They were just like, okay, we just want to help because this is going to potentially save our careers. Practically, what does that mean? You set up some interface, they can upload their images and use your tool and then assess how well it performs in some dimension? That would have been probably a little bit too much just in terms of timing and getting everyone on the same page. Uh, what we actually did was we just ran a representative set of a few artists that everybody knew. And then we ran their art through and we said, okay, here's the before and after, before the change by Glaze and after the change for different levels, different knobs, different strengths of protection. And then we show them, here's the protection effects. If you don't get protected, this is what you can do with mimicry. If you get protected, this is what happens after you've had the protection. And you know, we asked them lots of questions like, okay, what level of perturbation are you willing to tolerate on your own art? Now that you can see what it does to these three different or four different art styles, right? And people are pretty good at sort of understanding what that looks like, and they can mentally project that onto their own pieces of art. And then, you know, we show them the output. We say, okay, this is the protection. At what level do you think this is sufficient? Is this sufficient? Is this good enough protection? So yeah, so just tons of feedback, very positive. And so that went into the research paper. But, you know, even with all that help, we had artists who volunteered to help design the app that we wrote. 
you know, after a while, we we had Glaze out there and people were so enthusiastic. We had artists taking money out of their own pocket to fund social media campaigns, advertising for Glaze. That's how excited they were. We had people, of course, advocating for it on social media, on Facebook, on everywhere. You can imagine trades, organizations, guilds, all sorts of these kind of organizations held seminars about Glaze and lots of keynotes and all these things. So it was tremendous. But still, at the same time, we had so many things to learn. For example, like for months, I thought, okay, we're going to do this tool and it's going to be for GPUs and these artists are going to make use of this. It's going to be great. And then it took me like a whole three months to realize most artists don't have anywhere near that income <laughs> to buy a desktop computer to run GPUs on it. I'm like, what? And so these artists are like, I could barely afford an old tablet. Everything I do is on that old tablet. What am I going to do with their GPU app? So we did things like we built web service. We put up an Amazon cloud web service that we pay for that is free to artists so that they can basically run Glaze on their own art without having to pay for a computer or GPUs or whatever. And that's been hugely popular. Different art styles have different reactions to this. Super smooth gradient art styles like anime, manga, and other sort of very digital types of art. A tiny bit of change, they see everything. And so we really had to work hard to make that type of art amenable to Glazing. And, and that meant being smarter, optimizing the algorithm so they hid the perturbations in difficult to see places. You know, we had comic books that were being glazed. And that is crazy because it's black and white ink, pencil strokes, and there's nowhere to hide. So yeah, a lot of technical challenges to try to get it to where a lot of artists could actually see themselves using it. But yeah, it's been tremendous. I think there's so many different groups now around the world using it. And we get so many messages and emails on a daily basis we're making a big impact and that's really uh, exciting. That's awesome. And that led you to Nightshade? Yeah, so Glaze is a purely defensive tool. It protects you from the worst of the fine-tuning attacks, but it doesn't stop the whole process. It doesn't stop big companies like OpenAI and Google or anyone else from downloading your art and sticking it into an AI model for training. And the problem right now is that there's this massive asymmetry in power. AI companies can do whatever they want, and the only thing that's available to artists is opt-outs. It's the semblance of an opt-out list. Maybe you can sign here and say, please don't scrape me or don't train on my art and pray to God that some company is going to be nice enough to listen. But the problem is that even if they were to sign you up, there's no way you can verify it. There's no way you can validate it or, or enforce it. They can say one thing and they can do whatever the heck they want and, and no one would be able to tell the difference. Because there's no way right now in these models to definitively show whether a particular image has been trained or not. And so that just means that all the power is in the hands of the companies. And, and we wanted to stop that. We wanted to say, okay, companies should train on licensed data, just like everybody else, just like in music, just like in other areas. Copyright is a thing and people invest time and energy and their entire life's work into these outputs. So Nightshade is, the best analogy is basically it's a poison pill. It's a poison pill that you can stick into your art. It's reasonably benign by itself. A single image won't do anything to you. But if you keep taking it, then pretty soon it will cause a lot of internal confusion by these models that train on them. And in the worst case, if you take a lot of it, and you know, I can explain what that means, the models can potentially collapse. So the idea is artists would do this, would add this to their art. It works the same way as Glaze. It makes tiny little perturbations that, for the most part, are invisible. 
and it distorts the feature space, but it distorts it this time, not on the style, but on the composition. So the label says, this is a nice picture of a you know, golden retriever, but the feature space after shading it actually looks like a Persian cat. And so you feed this to the model long enough, or you feed a few versions of this to the model, and the model will think that a golden retriever looks like a Persian cat. And the next time you ask for a golden retriever, it'll give you a Persian cat. So that's effectively speaking what Nightshade does. Again, reminiscent of kind of some of the classic adversarial example types of works, you know, making the stop sign look like a giraffe or, you know, what have you. Sure. I mean, the part that it shares is that it's all futzing around in the feature space. But again, this is a poisoning attack, right? So this is at training time. And and the nice thing about that, uh, or the nice thing or the bad thing about it, is that once you train it in, it's actually very, very hard to remove. Interesting. So uh, one question that I have that kind of immediately comes to mind is I'm envisioning that the way these models are trained, you've got some you know, some large kind of pre-training data set that isn't even necessarily art. And then you're fine-tuning on art or you've got some fraction of the overall training set that is art. And so presumably the answer is, you know, yes, it works. But how is it that injecting this poison pill on what I'm imagining would be a relatively small subset of the overall training data set can have such significant effects that the approach works at all? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So a couple of things. First of all, when you look at the size of these training data sets, right, this is the reason why people have not looked in this direction for a long time, because they think, gosh, billions of images, hundreds of millions of images. I mean, there's no way you can approach that level in terms of poison samples to make a dent. Turns out that's not real. That's not really how it works, right? Because when you look inside that training set, you say, how many of them actually describe what a cat looks like or what a dog looks like? Turns out that is a really small number, you know, a few thousand. Okay. So, I mean, it's not minuscule. A few thousand is a few thousand. But now the numbers get to a scale where, okay, it's a little bit more reasonable. And now you're talking about, okay, maybe I need a few hundred images to start breaking things for a particular concept. Let's say just, we just want to make dogs look like cats. Right. So there's like maybe 5,000, maybe 10,000 images labeled with dog. Turns out you don't need to make a big dent in that either, because there are ways to make training data much more attractive to the model than a normal sample of average data. Because training data that looks just like everything else has minimal impact. You know, if you give it 50 copies of the same thing, after the first 10 copies, it's going to be like, okay, I get it. These are the features for this dog, and I'm seeing nothing new. So the next 40 copies is not going to make much of a dent. But there are ways to compute changes to samples so that they look very attractive because they offer something dramatically new and yet complementary to what the model thinks and knows about this space already. And so it turns out using a lot of these tricks, we can actually lower the number down to something like 20 to 50. That's all it takes, 20 to 50 poison images for a particular concept. And you've now successfully convinced something like stable diffusion, extra large, you know, SDXL, that a dog actually should be when I ask you for a dog, you give me a cat. That's basically what you can do. And so does the attack presume that these poison images that you seed out on the internet end up in uh, a curated data set like Lion or something else? Or is there another process that's happening that is kind of fine-tuning some pre-trained thing and that's where all the art is coming from? Like, you know, there's 
kind of the core model itself, right? And but there's also your attack is based on what sounds like a significant understanding of the way these companies are collecting and using art information, right? And so tell us a little bit about that process, what you've learned about it, and how that ties into the way the attack works in the real world. Sure. You know, in the real world, obviously, it's difficult to tell exactly how the companies or how every single company sources its data, right? What we do know is that there's a few places where they go regularly for scraping data, whether it's Twitter or a few other websites that are quite popular. And the key here is that you don't need a whole lot, right? What you need is, like I mentioned, something less than 100 of images concentrated on a particular label. And so what I estimate will happen is that people will actually go far and far above that number in terms of actual use of something like Nightshade. And the images will go everywhere. And then the question really comes down to, will it hit exactly the right training spot for a particular model? Maybe not. But there will be so much of it all over the place that, in fact, I think it will be very difficult to avoid any particular data source for training data that does not have nice shaded images on it. And then the question is, we don't know how the artists will distribute the data. We don't know where they're going to post it. We don't know how many people are going to get into it. But there's going to be a lot of people. And so the question really comes down to is, if you're a model trainer, if you're a owner of a large uh, model, the dangers for bumping into these tend to grow very, very fast, depending on how fast you're scraping data and how many different places you're scraping data. And of course, the challenge is what? That one, they're visibly invisible, right? To the human eye. You can't just look at an eyeball or something as, oh, that looks you know, shaky. We're going to remove that image. So you can't tell it with the human eye. Potentially, all you need is something like 50 images to slip in for it to convince your model to do something that's very difficult to reverse. And there are so many prompts out there, hundreds of thousands of prompts out there, things that you could prompt your model for, that if something were to break, it would be actually super hard to tell until someone actually triggered it. And by then, it's usually too late. And so the whole argument here, I think, for the AI trainers really comes down to there's going to be some risk. And that risk is going to continue to increase as people start to adopt this more and more. At some point, the risk and the actual damage to these models in terms of whether they have to pay for more screening processes, we don't know of any techniques that can actually detect these kind of uh, images reliably, much less remove them. But even if there were, the cost of these, those kind of techniques would have to be added on to model training. And so that goes up quickly. And so at some point, the goal is not to say, we're going to ruin some companies, we're going to ruin some models. That's not the point. The point is to make it so that sort of unregulated scraping of the entire internet, the, this whole practice of if it's online, it's mine. We want to make that practice so expensive that actually getting licensed art and licensed images from real people and paying for it, like any other normal person would, actually becomes more cost effective. Right. So that's the goal is to increase the cost of this particular model of getting training data so much that the company will, will think twice because it's going to be difficult to untrain or to reverse some of this poison. And they would rather go and say, OK, you know, we're going to have to bite the bullet and pay some artists real money so that they can give us licensed art, which is not going to be poison. And when did Nightshade come out? The paper came out. We released it two, three weeks ago. That the actual tool is coming out any minute now, very soon. Got it. So that's why we're not talking about actual results in the wild of actual data sets that are being poisoned. It's 
the tool is soon to reach hands, and then we'll see if chaos actually does ensue. Yes, but soon is very, very soon. So um, I expect some fireworks pretty soon. Okay, that'd be super interesting to watch. Yeah, the question that I was trying to get at earlier was like you were talking about, you know, essentially that these companies that were training these models were kind of selecting images based on some metric akin to information gain. And, you know, I was really curious, like, is that a an open known fact? Is it a, a reverse engineered fact? This is like separate from the model itself. It's like how these models are used by the companies. Yeah, we don't actually make any assumptions about how the training data is curated. I actually assume that it's much more about the domain and the network and perhaps some hand curation after that. But in terms of what makes a particular image more attractive to the model and have a stronger effect, that's just math. That's just gradients in terms of understanding what models already look like and understanding and being able to predict if you make a particular change to a a poison image, it will make it that much more attractive to a model because the loss will be higher and the model will prefer that particular image. Not that it's going to train on some other images, but that when trained across all these images, this particular image will have an outsized effect. It'll have an outsized impact. Exactly. Got it. Okay, interesting. Wow. Well, we can dig in deeper, but I think we've got to let you go right about now. But I will definitely be keeping an eye on this project and the calamity that may ensue. And, you know, maybe there'll be a follow up to discuss said calamity at some point. I appreciate the work and I appreciate the approach that has been taken to the work and the degree of engagement with artists is super interesting. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I just want to point out something that maybe we didn't envision from day one, but it's actually happening is that companies are now engaging with this because there's a lot of companies that have proprietary IP and they are just as concerned as individual artists about getting scraped and getting owned by models. And so I think we didn't quite intend this, but I think it will potentially lead to a future where companies start to sort of build their own barriers around their own IP by using tools like Nightshade. And that's going to be interesting. This is going to be potentially a new way of sort of enforcing copyright into the data itself. And there could be a lot more corporate use. I mean, I can imagine like a Getty Images would be heavily incented to use something like this. Yeah, absolutely. I can't say that I foresaw that coming, but that's a very interesting development for sure. Awesome. Well, Ben, thanks so much for sharing with us what you've been working on. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.